politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, liberty, property, and everything in between. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here for Tuesday, July 11th. And again, it might seem like a nice, prosperous, peaceful summer. But we are now at the point where we will not be able to afford the standard of living that our parents and grandparents afforded, and that is by design. It's by design from everything both Congress and the Federal Reserve have been doing since 2008 with the first financial crisis, and then certainly turbocharged with COVID, they caused the problem, engender a need for their solution, and it's gotten to the point where we don't have a private economy anymore. Everything you see, asset bubbles, inflation, winners and losers, monopolies, none of that is Adam Smith's natural order of things. We don't live in that economy anymore. It is all centrally planned. And it's not a coincidence that overlapping with that same, again, kind of 15-year period of accelerating the financial and fiscal central control, central planning, is the cultural Marxism, the rise of cultural Marxism as well. Because guess what? Once they make you poor, dependent on their monopolies, then they can tighten the screws with their small cabal of businesses that are propped up by government to basically box out our religious, political views, social views from society, uh, groom everyone into insanity, and make sure you own nothing, eat bugs, and we'll be happy. And that's literally the path we are on today. So we're going to have a special guest coming up to discuss the role of the Federal Reserve, what needs to be done about it, what is inflation, as well as the effects, the long-term effects of the COVID fiscal and specifically monetary policies that are plaguing us to this day. So we got a lot of ground to cover. First, our first sponsor today is iTarget Pro. As I always say, to be a responsible gun owner, you need to learn how to win a gunfight. Um, in order to do that, you got to practice. In order to practice, it's a lot of money. Speaking of inflation, we certainly see that with the cost of gun ownership. One way to save on the range and really ammo is to use iTarget Pro. It's a system that law enforcement relies upon where... You put in a dummy bullet, a laser bullet, into your gun, and you shine it on a target. And what sort of target is that? They now have iTarget Cube. You station a couple of cubes in your house. It comes three in a packet, and it times your accuracy, your timing, on hitting the targets. And you could station them in different places, practice multiple targets, uh, room-clearing drills. So it's a lot of fun. And if you go to iTargetPro.com, Offer code CR, you basically earn back your payment with one day of training, right? Because that's that's worth one trip to the range. So again, the letter I targetpro.com put an offer code CR for 10% off plus free shipping. It's the easiest and most cost-effective way to train, and it pays off in a single day at iTargetPro.com. Offer code CR. 
So, folks, I, I want to preface our guest just by giving you a couple of statistics here of, of this long, let's call it long COVID, but not the long physical COVID, the long economic COVID. Every vice that you see now in terms of monopolies, consolidation, and really inflation and debt, and then the vicious cycle, that is a legacy of COVID. The fact that we just blew through a trillion dollars in new debt in five weeks is a legacy of the, of the Fourth Reich and the Great Reset. As CBO said in their diplomatic way, but even they couldn't hide it in their recent long-term budget projection, such high and rising debt would have significant economic and financial consequences. It would, among other things, slow economic growth, drive up interest payments to foreign holders of U.S. debt, elevate the risk of fi- fiscal crisis, increase the likelihood of other adverse effects that could occur more gradually, and make the nation's fiscal position more vulnerable to an increase in interest rates. In other words, we're trapped in a vicious cycle of public debt, inflation, higher interest rates, spawning more public debt, and then more personal debt because you can't afford anything, and then, of course, recession, right? Because when you have all that misallocation of resources, you have recession. So that's what we're facing now. Obviously, many of you have seen mortgage rates have hit 7.38%, but it's it's you know it's been higher before previous generations but on this degree of asset bubble of home prices caused by the federal reserve as our guest is going to talk about personal credit card debt is now over a trillion dollars and then the the average credit card payments are up to 22% highest interest ever obviously car rates are pretty much the highest ever i mean some of them are a little bit off their peak from last year but that's just you know, that's the natural oscillation. It goes up, you know, 50% and then comes down 10% off the 50. And we're like, oh, it's down. No, it's cementing a permanent baseline. Obviously, home prices are out of control. No one could afford living anymore. And none of this is natural. None of it is natural. Our friend Frog Capital on Twitter, he points out a couple of just interesting to me this is the long economic covid in one shot and it's done by design the dow jones typically picks 30 companies that they feel represent the economy when you say the market went up it means usually the dow jones what's the dow jones 30 companies year to date the dow is up 2.52% so so very modest but the nasdaq is up 38.4%. Okay? Why? Because 55% of the NASDAQ 100 index is seven companies. Now, what's with those seven companies? Again, things like Amazon and Apple and Microsoft. What's with those seven companies? I want you to bookmark this. The market cap of the seven largest companies in 2020, right before the Great Reset, the Fourth Reich, the biggest civilizational arson since Adam and Eve, 
Their market cap was $4.7 trillion. Today, it is $10.85 trillion. In other words, in nominal dollar terms, they, in a matter of three years, have gained $6.15 trillion. Okay? What about U.S. nominal GDP? Dollar GDP. It was $21.1 trillion. Now it's $26.9 trillion. So it went up how much? $5.8 trillion. So this is a brilliant point he made. So in dollar terms, it's not, not adjusted for inflation. Nominal terms, $5.8 trillion in three years. That's how much the economy grew. The top seven companies grew $6.15 trillion. So that means that the entirety of the growth came from those seven companies, or put another way, we've actually contracted by, you know, $35 billion minus those seven companies. Meanwhile, in the first half of 2023, 340 U.S. firms filed for bankruptcy, setting a new 13-year high. In other words, just like everyone understands healthcare is unnatural. Okay, the fact that you now have five insurance companies, a handful of hospital conglomerates, and, and then hospitals buying other hospitals, hosp- uh, pharmacies buying hospitals, the provider being the consumer at the same time, none of that is natural. It is all created by government. So now you have that in banking, and not just the banking sector, but all sectors. And that's what they want. It's not even a matter of sucking out the small businesses. It's, it's the midsize and kind of low-level sm- uh, large businesses. It's just the mega corporations that exist. That is what, again, that wasn't natural. Yeah, kind of we were headed in that direction. That is what the COVID fascism did. That's what it did. What are we going to do about that? How do you live in freedom? And then, of course, it, it, it's, it's no coincidence that ESG and that sort of mentality took off right around the same period of time. Because once they have that artificial monopoly, now we could come in and say, hey, uh, do you want to be part of the economy? Hey, uh, that's a nice loan you had there. It would be a shame for us to terminate it if you don't uh, have the right opinions. That is the Fourth Reich. None of it was natural. All of it was created by our own government. But most importantly, by an unelected branch, this Federal Reserve. And to this day, we are suffering from it. So I want to, I really hope we have enough time because there is so much ground to cover on this issue. And again, it's, it's, it's a very important, as we debate, the Freedom Caucus just sent a letter to Kevin McCarthy demanding that the appropriation bills not reflect the levels of spending in the debt ceiling deal that we need to start over and cut as much as we can. You can't say you care about inflation and the cost of living and continue this trajectory. Okay, that's the reality. So first, our interview today is sponsored by our friends at Barrel Buddy. Find out the best way to clean your guns at BarrelBuddy.com. Be a responsible gun owner. 
you got to practice, but you also got to clean your gun. Now, the truth is, if you're using iTarget, it doesn't get dirty, but inevitably, you do need to practice with live fire ammunition once in a while. So it has multi-stage cleaning, two-part polymer design scrubs and collects the particulates, and then it absorbs the the residue um, and buffs clean. It's disposable. So, you know, there's 50 that come in a packet of 15 bucks and uh, use a couple. You know, I usually use maybe three per cleaning. So it lasts all year. Very, very cheap and efficient way of cleaning it. Um, it, It cleans bore rifling, 360 degree compression when you put it, push it through the barrel. Uh, it also, you could lubricate too. You you lubricate the cartridge and then jam it through as well. No lint, no shedding, no hassle. It's strong and durable, custom fit, really genius design by three patriots in Michigan listeners to this show. So you could support Second Amendment, support being a strong, responsible gun owner, support this show and support Parallel Economies by going to BarrelBuddy.com today. So as I mentioned before, COVID really crystallized the policies that were established during the Great Recession 2008, where the Federal Reserve worked with Congress to create social and economic transformation without representation. I mean, that's really what the Federal Reserve is, economic transformation without representation, creating artificial monopolies, picking winners and losers, becoming the biggest lender, borrower, owner of mortgage-backed securities, on the block, and therefore creating booms and busts, ruining the business cycle, creating endless inflation, and tragically doing this all to service woke and weaponized government. I mean, really, that's what it, what it was. COVID obviously was this on steroids because it was the first time we paid people not to work. Um, literally, if we would have just flushed the money down the toilet, we would have been better off. But instead, this is what we did. And we're trying to be convinced that the pee on our leg is really water. That, oh, we got full employment, 0% unemployment, you know, virtual employment. We got uh, inflation's coming down. It's all good. The fact that, you know, I find my checking account every month. I literally have to backload some money in it, into it from my savings account. It's my income is not enough to purvey the standard I had until now. Um, Everyone I know sees that. It's obvious. Uh, Maybe it's gone down from the insane plateau uh, in some of the summer months of last year, but at the end of the day, are things a lot more expensive than they were pre-COVID or, you know, 2021? Absolutely. And it's not getting better from there. So this is this long economic covid we are seeing as a result of all these policies. And again, it would be bad enough if it were just Congress doing this, but you basically have an unelected fourth branch of government in the Federal Reserve that's the judge, jury, and executioner of our entire economy and way of life. As we noted, post-COVID, the entire GDP, dollar GDP growth came from seven companies. Okay? And now... We have a banking crisis where we have small banks are increasingly going to be gobbled up by the large banks because, you know, again, this business of artificially keeping interest really low, banks overextending themselves based on that. Oh, and then we surge it back up, and now we can't even handle historical average interest rates. 
Same thing with the, the, the housing industry. Where are we headed? Now, one of the new, now he's not new at all, he's been at this for many years, but new writers for me that I've followed the last couple months on the Federal Reserve and banking, mortgages, housing, is Alex Pollock. He's senior fellow of the Mrs. Institute. Uh, he's done work for several think tanks, served in the Treasury Department during the Trump administration. He was also uh, president and CEO of Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago. So this is a very deep understanding of banking and the Federal Reserve, which, frankly, I don't have a full grasp of, and that's the problem. But, you know, Federal Reserve controls everything. So he has a really, really good insight. So I want you guys to go to alexjpollock.com. Just take a look of his assortment of research and writings, uh, again, on central banking, housing, finance, all of it together. And then what I really want you to do, and I'm still waiting for my copy in the mail, he has a relatively new book, Surprised Again, The COVID Crisis and the New Market Bubble. Hey, Alex, I'm so glad I found your writings. Thanks so much for joining us for the first time here at Blaze Media. Thank you so much for inviting me and having me on. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, we need someone like you to guide us through this. So I want to start off with this long economic COVID, which basically seems to be the title of your book. You know, I've lamented on this show on the physical and liberty aspect of COVID that we have walked away from it as if nothing happened. We have not rectified all of the liberty violations, rectified the scientific problems. But on the economic front, we've walked away from it, too. Uh, the White House is putting out information as if we are we have been made whole again, you know, pre-COVID levels. Inflation is down, no problem. What is the truth? Well, excuse me, the rate of inflation uh, is down, but it's still high. Uh, two or three percent inflation is high inflation. And we have a central bank which uh, a decade ago, in a, uh, in a historical reversal, declared itself formally committed to perpetual inflation. We're always to want, always to want inflation at 2% a year. So when you look at your checking account and find out it won't cover your expenses, uh, that's because we had a runaway inflation, as we all know, over a couple of years, and now prices just go up from there. Uh, nobody these days thinks that prices should go back down to where they were. They just keep on rising uh, uh, with a Federal Reserve committed to inflation forever. I'd like to point out to people that if, if prices increase at 2% a year, in the course of a lifetime, which is, let's say, 80 years, that means they will quintuple. That hardly qualifies as stable prices. And then people say, oh, well, 2%, that's sort of hard. How about 3% inflation target? Well, at 3%, prices increase more than 10 times in an average lifetime. Oh, how about 4 Prices increase 23 times in the course of a lifetime at a 4% inflation. So as always, we're amazed by the power of compound interest, the power of compound inflation, the destructive power of compound inflation has, uh, uh, has a, has a uh, similar amazement uh, to it. And uh, 
thank you for mentioning my book. Uh, I had a, uh, a previous book called Finance and Philosophy, Why We're Always Surprised. That was published in 2018. Uh, it's about how nobody, including central banks, uh, can manage the economy or know or know the future. It's the, the financial future, this book argues, is not only unknown but unknowable, and therefore it's hopeless to think that you're going to have a committee of central bankers who are going to correctly anticipate it, which they obviously can't do. So we had uh, Why We're Always Surprised, and then the new book was Surprised Again uh, by the COVID crisis. And as you say, it's my view uh, that what we are living right now still is the aftermath uh, of the COVID financial crisis. I, I don't mean the health crisis of the pandemic. I mean the political response uh, uh, Daniel, which you which you alluded to, the political response, and then the financial response, which was a panic in the spring of 2020, and then a severe financial correction, and then a wild financial uh, expansion by both fiscal and monetary, uh, a uh, finance by printing money, and then and then uh, following that that Fed what we call the everything bubble or asset price inflation in all asset uh, classes, uh, then the correction of 2020, and then the banking problems starting in the early 2023, uh, and to where we are now, we're still living in the, uh, in the impact of, this, of the financial COVID crisis of 2020. It's still, it's still yeah. running and still struggling with it. So, so it's like a drag car racer, you know, back and forth with the steering wheel, where it's ultimately from the first reckless decision, and we have to keep correcting, overcorrecting, even if you make the right decisions, certainly the wrong decisions, and, and that's where we are now. I want to I get into this, again, the circle between the Federal Reserve policies, COVID, political response, inflation, and then specifically the housing problems we're seeing today with you know, how even historically average mortgage rates, but pegged to today's prices, are just a killer for people trying to buy a home. But first, folks, along with inflation, guess what else is going to go up? Life insurance. Um, if you have a family like I do, your loved ones depend upon you. I'm pretty much the single income in my family, and it would be irresponsible not to get life insurance. Most people do not get enough from employer-sponsored life insurance. That's why I want you guys to head over to our partner, policygenius.com slash Daniel. Well, what's Policy Genius? They're built to modernize the life insurance industry. They're not an insurance company, but they aggregate online easily, comparing apples to apples to find you the lowest prices. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 25 per month for a million of coverage, which usually you'll need for a family. Uh, some options offer coverage in as little as a week. Most avoid unnecessary medical exams. So, again, very easy. They also have licensed agents who can help you. Uh, talk it out so it's not just some sort of you know website into the abyss, no added fees, and your personal details are always kept private. So again, head over to policygenius.com slash Daniel. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net, and you're certainly going to need it. So, um, Alex, I, I wanted to just – it's very complicated – to, to most people what the Federal Reserve does and doesn't do. So most people understand that in reaction to COVID, 
the Congress pretty much, by my best calculation, between all the bills together, uh, issued about $5.7 trillion worth of legislative spending uh, for COVID. And so people, I think, understand right away, created more debt, and that that's how inflation ties in. But could you explain exactly where the Federal Reserve comes in? So Congress spends a bunch of money that we don't have. We don't have enough revenue to cover it. Take, pick up from there what the Federal Reserve did to that's service right. that. Well, we're down to the fundamental reason why central banks exist, uh, going back to the foundation of the bank of England, which was 1694, and it's still the same today. And the fundamental reason why central banks exist is to finance the government of which they're a part. If the, uh, if the Congress decides to spend uh, more uh, than it has in income, it has to issue debt, just like you. If you're spending more, if you're spending more than you're making, either your savings are going to be shrinking or your debt is going to be rising. And in the case of the government, which has been in deficit uh, for decades, uh, the debt is rising. Well, who is going to buy that debt? Well, you could try to sell it to investors in this country and around the world, but they might they might demand higher and higher interest rates if you're selling more or if you're wishing to raise more and more debt. So much easier to sell it to your friendly central bank, which is, after all, part of the government. The uh, the Federal Reserve and central banks like to claim they're independent, but don't believe it. Uh, an old saying, uh, going back to the classic uh, uh, governors of the Fed, say like William McChesney Martin in the 1950s, was the the Fed is independent within the government. So one of the big reasons that the Fed exists is to buy the government debt at a price that other people wouldn't pay. That is a higher price, a lower interest rate. And that's exactly what happened uh, in uh, 2020 and subsequently. So in order to to have the money to spend, the Congress borrowed it from the Fed. The Fed bought the Treasury. Where did the the Fed get the money? I'm, I'm coming. Thank you. <laughs> We're coming to that. We know how the Fed got the money. It printed it. It created it. Now, magic. Now Black Fed, magic. What is it, like $4.7 trillion in total? Yeah, the Fed The Fed uh, expanded its own total balance sheet up to over $8 trillion, which was 10 times as much as it was uh, in 2007 before the housing crisis. Um but it, uh, it, it largely it bought uh, it, it bought in total uh, in the end five point seven trillion dollars in government debt, which was an increase, let's say, of four trillion. And uh, if where did it get where did it get that money? Well, it it either literally printed it, which is the creation of Federal Reserve notes, the the paper you find in your wallet, which you note buys less and less all the time. Uh, or it, it um, you could say figuratively printed it, which means it creates it by simply writing credits on its books. So uh, banks have accounts with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve prints money in this other sense. You could call it accounting money by simply crediting 
your your account. So it's just making it's making it up. So printing in the wider sense is how where the money came from. Now the Fed not only uh, uh, bought government debt, it also bought mortgages, uh, as you uh, as you alluded to uh, a minute ago, Daniel. Uh, so that it was it was not only um, uh, inflating the government debt market and keeping government debt interest rates uh, extraordinarily low by being the big buyer, uh, but it also did the same in the mortgage market. Now, uh, from the foundation of the Fed in 1913 until 2008, the uh, amount of mortgages on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve was always the same number, namely zero. And in my opinion, zero is what it should be. But instead, it went up to $2.6 trillion of distorting the mortgage market. And the Federal Reserve finances its purchases of mortgages, and it became the largest mortgage holder by far that there is. And it financed them in the same way, by printing money. It's actually quite an astonishing story. So when you look at the housing prices that have gone up so unnaturally the last few years, and again, I know everyone's like, oh, they're down the last few months. But again, it's, you know, you're you're 50% higher relative to three years ago instead of 60%. I'm making up the numbers, but that's, that's the game they play. You're saying a big part of that is not naturally driven by society and societal trends in housing purchase but by the federal reserve Uh, that is exactly correct so here we have massive assets that that they've they've bought up they've offloaded very little of it from what i can see i mean most of the covid purchase is still there the covid era purchase is still there so what is that doing to the housing market now well, most of it, most of the purchases are still there. The, the reduction in the Fed balance sheet uh, is has been, I guess, about uh, uh, $500 billion, which sounds like a lot, but it's, but it's still well over $8 trillion, which is amazingly uh, big. And the Fed owns still over 20% of all the mortgages there are uh, in the country. Uh, my a little line about this is the Fed made itself into the biggest savings and loan in history. And inside the Fed is indeed the biggest savings and loan in history. Uh, By doing that, they suppressed mortgage rates. When you suppress mortgage rates, you make house prices go up because people are willing to pay uh, for a house uh, depending on the the, mortgage. on their monthly payment they're going to have to make. And the lower the interest rate, the lower the monthly payment, the higher the price they can afford. So we got this artificial inflation uh, in uh, in house prices the same way we got inflation in stocks, in bonds, and in cryptocurrencies, uh, all, being, all being driven by the Fed and other central banks, since the central banks are in on this game led by the Fed together, internationally uh and you got so you have the distortion that the house prices go up now uh when the fed has stopped buying mortgages and it's not selling any it has sold zero mortgages 
but there's a natural runoff as as mortgages are paid month by month and some prepay when people have to move and sell their house. So there's been some decrease, but it's still a, a, a two and a half trillion dollar Fed portfolio, which, as I said, should be zero. Uh, uh, but they've stopped buying. So, you know, you had a big buyer. The Fed became, like say, the big bid with, with two capital B's. Uh, in the mortgage market, uh, drove the prices of mortgages up, the the yield on mortgages down, and therefore the price of houses up all artificially, uh, and in in my view, unwisely. And they kept at it for a long time uh, after they should clearly have stopped, uh, even if you thought it was justified in the beginning. And so you get these very very big distortions now. So. They've stopped buying, so interest rates on mortgages have gone from less than 3% to over 7% uh, on the long-term mortgage. Well, that means that your monthly mortgage payment uh, has obviously more than doubled. Now, how come the prices haven't come down that much, as you'd expect, given you know the doubling of the mortgage rate? Yeah, prices have come down some over their top. Uh, that's a very interesting uh, uh, problem right now that, that the experts in this area uh, are contemplating. Uh, of course, prices have come down in in some particularly inflated uh, places very dramatically, particularly in Western cities like uh, San Francisco. Uh, but on average in the whole country, they actually haven't come down a, a, as much as I thought. Now, some people uh, not implausibly uh, attribute this to the fact that because the people who got the artificially cheap mortgages Mm. know what a great deal they have, they won't sell and they won't move and that constrains supply. Uh, And at least, especially for people who have the money to be cash buyers who can finance out of their investments and savings, uh, they are not affected or at least not directly by the interest rates. But you get this very interesting uh, situation of, of the people who have the, the artificially cheap mortgages knowing that if they sell now, the next house they buy, they're, they're going to be paying 7% on their mortgage instead of 3 yeah. and they don't want to do that. So they don't sell, so they hang onto the house, and that constrains the supply. Uh, that's at least one interpretation that people are thinking about, and, and I think it uh, uh, probably has some truth to it. And so, again, this is how when you have market distortions, you can sometimes get the worst of all. Usually, as you noted, have a trade-off. The prices go up, the yield goes down. But the government has manipulated it so much. um, It's not just that, oh, well, interest rates have gone up, but they've gone up suddenly after they artificially kept it low, really – you know, since the 2008 crisis with, yeah, you for know, way, for way more than a decade, way more than so a you, decade. Was- so, so most people are sitting like I bought a decade ago, I'm sitting on three and an eighth mortgage. That would be a huge consideration for me. If I were inclined to move, like, wait a minute, I don't want to be stuck with a, you know, seven and a third now, whatever it's up to. And, That's right. you know, even though I would make money on my home. So you kind of have this sweet spot of, between the price of homes and the mortgage rate, even though, yeah, it's been 10, 12% back, you go to the 90s, the 80s, but but the two together is really, really tough for first-time owners, similar kind of dynamic oh, sure. with cars, prices 
record high or sure. near the record, and then and then the interest rates are up. So so where do you see this heading? As it's widely predicted by the market that the Fed will hike the Fed um, funds rate another, you know, quarter percent. Uh, what is it, J- July twenty fifth? Yes, that's right, and, and that that seems uh, reasonable. And now you have uh, short term interest rates in the five percent levels, uh, which, as we said before, is a very normal level of interest rates historically speaking. And five or six percent on mortgages, or, or seven, is, is in, in a normal range for mortgage rates. But all of this feels so high to yep. us because we were uh, fooled by the long-term manipulation by the Federal Reserve uh, of of both long-term and short-term interest rates to artificially low levels, and they did it as we talked about before by by just buying up both treasury debt, short and long, especially long. I want to talk about the Fed's own balance sheet in a, in a minute, if you'd let me. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and thereby suppressing interest rates. So now uh, inflation becomes runaway because, the, you know, we know nothing is free. That's the most fundamental proposition there is in economics, and it is a fundamental truth. Nothing is free. And if you print the money, you're going to get inflation. They got not only the endemic inflation, the perpetual inflation they were they were planning on, uh, as I said, which is an odd thing for classic central bankers to want, uh, but they got the runaway inflation. All right. So then they put the short-term rates up to try to control that back up to normal levels, but there's been now so much uh, uh, introduction of, 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 of lulling. Like, you know, the old story about the frogs bo- boiling in the, yeah. uh, the water. <laughs> it's not, it's not true about frogs, you know, but, but it makes a great story. <laughs> you, you put the frog in warm water and you heat it little by little and he gets used to it. And finally he boils. Well, that's a little bit, uh, as I say, even though it's not true of frogs, it is true of financial markets. They they get used to, and, and and a lot of financial structures were built, and a lot of debt was taken on, and a lot of leverage was taken on, in the in the low feeling of these artificially low rates. So now we can't stand it when rates go back to normal, and we get huge losses uh, in in the banks, for yep. example. In I, other yeah. words, both both banks- public and personal debt cannot handle historical average interest rates. So the public debt is, you know, ballooning because we have what well, we service the trillion in debt in uh, in a matter of 5 weeks now at uh, you know 5% rather than, you know, like 1.5%. So historically it wasn't a problem, but on that amount of money it's a problem. Same thing, you know, on a 6-700,000 home now, um you know, you're talking about uh, a lot of money on you know, even if it's a historical average six seven percent mortgage, same thing with car payments, with cars being a historical know, average interest rate, but not a historical average house price. House price, exactly. So now <laughs> we can't even handle that. So you're like, all right, well maybe the rates will go down, but no, because as you mentioned, all the printing of money, there's even more inflation. Now I'm not agreeing to the premise that raising interest rates w- will curb it, but clearly our Federal Reserve uh, overlords believe that, so they're going to continue 
the hike and certainly the elevated levels. So we're going to be trapped between this endless vicious cycle. But there's another yeah. element of the inflation I know you wanted to get to. So nothing is free. The Federal Reserve is Santa Claus purchasing everything. And for a while, they made a good run of it. It always looked like they were, you know, buying up everything, distorting markets. But they would turn a profit on the interest rates on the yields, buy up the stuff, sell it for more, it looked great. But now they're having a problem with a loss on their own balance sheet. Could you explain that and the consequences? I can. Well, in order to drive long-term interest rates down, as we said, the Federal Reserve bought up long-term investments, both long-term treasury notes and bonds, uh, the Federal Reserve owns about a trillion and a half dollars uh, of treasury bonds, which mature in more than 10 years from now. So they're going to have them a long time. And they own a bunch more that are from five to 10 years. Uh, and they own two and a half trillion of 30 of 30 year mortgages. When they were buying these, since they had suppressed short term interest rates down to almost zero, I mean, let's call it 15, you know, 0.15 percent or 15 basis points, uh, as, uh, as we say in the financial markets. So they could buy uh, mortgages and Treasury bonds and. and they and and the average yield the Federal Reserve has on these is two percent, approximately. Two percent looked pretty good. You know, can you remember that? Our memories are so short. <laughs> there was a point at which two percent yield looked good to people, and it even looked good to the Federal Reserve itself, and it looked good to the banks, like say Silicon Valley Bank, who was buying up mortgages at the same time. Well, if you can finance them for 0.15%, you can make a nice profit. But now the short-term rates went up as they had to because of the inflation, as we said, up to yep. normal levels. All right, that's five, more or less 5% in round numbers. So now you've got a 2% asset, but you're paying 5% on your liabilities to finance the asset. So your, the income to the Federal Reserve and to many banks, and as it was for the notably failing banks like Silicon Valley and First Republic, uh, income, 2%, expense, 5%. So I say, you know, it's really hard to make money that way. <laughs> and, and it's uh, true of the Federal Reserve itself. Now, very few people understand this. I mean, the Federal Reserve uh, is a bank, or I should say it's really 12 banks, but if you put them all together, you get one giant $8 trillion bank. The Federal Reserve itself bought up all these assets yielding 2%, and it's now costing them 5% to finance them. And so they are themselves losing mammoth amounts of money. And I want your, our listeners to just think, how much money do you think the Federal Reserve itself has lost in the first six months of 2023? You can, you can see the financial statements of yep. the Federal Reserve, but most people don't even know they exist. Well, 3% off of a few trillion, I mean, you, you're going to get like $100 billion in, in, in losses. That's right. In the first, well, in a year, in the first six months of this year, the Federal Reserve banks altogether lost fifty-six 
billion dollars. I mean, $56 billion. That's in six months. So multiply that times two to get a year. You get a hundred and you know an estimate of a hundred and twelve billion dollars lost. And those are operating losses. Those are not mark to market losses. That's expense in excess of income. Well, what that means is those are actually losses to the federal budget. Ultimately, losses to the taxpayers. Well, hundred and twelve billion by their own. So what happens with that hundred five billion? Where do they make up the deficit? They print it up. <laughs> so you print even more. So that, yeah, in other words, everything correct. they do is now inflationary. It's a vicious cycle. So they're like, let's hike interest rates to deal with inflation. I mean, that's in plain English what they seem to be saying. That's but what they did, and they and they needed to do because they were correcting their previous distortion. Their previous distortion, but now they're in a vicious cycle because ah. because isn't this ah. the inversion curve now where you have so so for our listeners, I never really kind of talked about this, but you know we have typically people are willing to uh, put away a long term investment, you know, ten years worth if you get. A higher yield, you get a, a greater rate of return on your investment. So typically, a ten-year treasury would be would return a higher rate of interest than a two-year, and certainly a six-month. But now we have an inversion where the rate of interest on the two-year is higher than the ten-year, and the rate on the six-month is even higher. I think it's like you know five point three percent today. And then the ten-year note is like you know still hovering below four, so it's like a hundred forty, yeah, yeah, hundred thirty, hundred forty yeah. basis points below. Yeah. So so that's only so going to get an, worse, as you say, an inverted yield curve. It demonstrates a consensus on the part of everybody who's buying and selling in the bond market that interest rates will go down. That that means that you think interest rates will go down. Uh, on average, I mean, among everybody who's buying and selling, and that may be right or may not. You know, for a long time, we were sure that interest rates would go up, but the Federal Reserve, through its manipulations, kept having lower, you know, they called it lower for longer, lower interest rates for longer, and it was lower for very much longer than anybody thought 10 years ago. I remember being in strategic planning meetings and saying, well, these low rates are killing us. These low rates at that time are killing us, but they can't stay here. They must rise. And well, they had to, but they lasted lower longer. Well, now the issue is higher for longer. How much longer is higher? Well, the that inverted yield curve you're talking about shows a market expectation that they won't stay this high at least over on average over yep. uh, over the period uh, let's say of 10 years that's if market forecast that that the rates would be more would come down so that if you get 4% on average over 10 years you would at least break even is a market forecast but that may or may not be right of course well i'm not a, much of a banker here but i mean just simple math isn't this a liquidity problem a lending investment problem that typically what you buy short term to lend you borrow short term i mean to lend long term well if i got to borrow at uh, 5.3 and then i lend at uh, a loss Four. of 3.9 
how does that work in terms of the lending market? Right. You don't want to do that. So that's, <laughs> that's the government bond market. So it's either and people who are buying that uh, can do it as a speculation. And the speculation is that interest rate rates will fall and they'll mm -hmm. be ahead, or they can be what we call real money buyers, which means they've got the cash and they're, and they're, they're not going to be paying on the debt. But if you're a bank, you are always leveraged very highly. So you're always paying on short-term wow. debt uh, to finance your long-term holdings. Well, now look at the stuff you bought back when long-term rates were 2% are killing you now. I mean, I, and not, not every bank, but many, many banks and, and banks on average. Uh, so, all right, now, what's going to happen with the inverted yield curve? That clearly suppresses the uh, willingness of the banks for just the reason you say to buy something. A bank wouldn't be typically, well, if they were doing something prudently, you know, they might be buying in the range of three to five years, but they're financing it very short, one month, three months, six months. So that puts you uh, upside down at the moment. So you don't want to do it just as just as you say. Uh, and on top of that, you've got all these old things that, you know, one of my favorite sayings when I talk with my colleagues about various famous mistakes in finance that we or others have made, we say it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> well, seemed like a good idea at the time to a lot of banks led by the Fed and to the Fed itself to buy up very long-term instruments at 2%. And uh, and now they're uh, generating uh, yep. very big losses against, as we said, against the five percent. The bottom it, line is one so. thing gets a vote, and that's this woke and weaponized government. It gets a vote, and it's always going to increase its debt, and that's well, that's the thing sure. they can't control because that's what's driving all of this. That you can never service this enough, and now again we we can't sustain as an economy with average interest rates with the amount of debt we have and then certainly again built upon those market distortions for 15 years so isn't there another consequence of this too which is the destruction of community banks i, I to me i watched the trend of banking since the decisions in the aftermath of of the 2008 crisis and it reminds me a lot of healthcare the last generation, where basically all the government market distortions created mergers and acquisitions to the point where there's no private practice anymore. So isn't that similarly what's happening in banking, that all of these decisions are going to make it that it's only the Wells Fargo Bank of America that have the economies of scale to weather this storm with, with credit and interest rates? Well, we certainly have seen a very large consolidation already. When I was a trainee in the bank a few years ago, there were 13,000 banks in the United States, and there were 5,000 savings and loans. That's 18,000. Uh, now the total is about 44,400 or, or so. Uh, so um, there's already been an enormous consolidation, and I think these uh, pressures we're talking about will will push it further because a lot of the banks were indeed um, uh, uh, 
tempted by the Fed to to make the same mistake the Fed itself made of uh, lending very long and borrowing short, and are now and are now being being squeezed by that. Um, that's I call the Fed the, the Pied Piper, uh, leading the banks into making a classic mistake uh, in in that fashion. Um, well. Many people think, and and I think they're probably right, that the Fed prefers to have a few great big banks because that makes it easier uh, uh, for them uh, to do Simon Says you know, and to follow have a, the leader. To have a, a comfortable a comfortable club. Uh, one of a, a classic writer on central banking describes central banks as the manager of the banking club, uh, and it's uh, you know you're more likely to have a tight club if you have a few big things than if you have lots of independent-minded little things. Yes, yes. And and that's my concern, that it's not just the woke Silicon Valley green energy. You know, they, they went under earlier because they overextended themselves on ridiculous things, ridiculous type of insolvent loans. But 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 even your basic community bank, again, when you, when you force them to uh, – you force the rates this low for so long, and then now you have this inversion – it, it's just not going to be a solvent for a lot of the smaller banks, and it will follow the trend of all small businesses post COVID, where you know, as I noted, you know, the nominal GDP uh, in in dollar terms has gone up um, five point eight trillion since COVID, um, but six point one five trillion of that, meaning more of it, came from the largest seven companies. And that's what these policies seem to do, consolidate the power into the hands of the few. Andrew Jackson, I know you're fond of this, his veto message is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes. And he notes that obviously you're going to have natural distinctions based on talents, education, wealth, yada, yada, and that's fine. But when the laws undertake to add to these natural and just advantage art and advantages artificial distinctions – uh, you know, that's when we have a right to complain about the injustice of government. So what what, what that, do that you recommend? That is a brilliant part. Yeah. That you, you're just citing a brilliant part of Jackson's quite brilliant uh, veto of the rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that, that, 1832 we can, we can recommend rechartering. to the readers, they might want to find that. Yep, yeah, yeah no, it's the 1832 veto message. Veto message, yeah. Uh, I do think that the that the manipulations of the Fed for the uh, artificially low interest rates, in my judgment, definitely have accelerated the, uh, the consolidation uh, uh, forces, which were there anyway, and I think would have been there, but, but are stronger uh, precisely because of of these uh, uh, factors introduced by the Fed that we have been uh, that we have been discussing. So, so what is the best thing to do now? Is it to repeal Humphreys Hawkins, basically this dual mandate to focus on inflation and employment and 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 repeal that, and rather have them only focus on a stable currency? Well, Humphrey Hawkins was actually a a bill amending a, a bill of the year before, which is the 1977 Federal Reserve Reform Act of 1977. I think it's probably after 50 years time for another Federal Reserve Reform Act. Mm. Uh, it might underline what the 1977 Act said was 
uh, among the mandates are stable prices. It didn't say inflation forever or even stable inflation. Even 2%, if you think 2% is low inflation, it said nothing like that. It said stable prices. You know what? what I, I want to I wanna elaborate on that just because we're almost out of time. But yeah, we are. I meant but to look ask how much fun we're having. I know we're having way too much fun, and there's too much to go into. But this one point, because you said it before, and I meant to come back to it. Obviously, I think everyone understands the hyperinflation and the fact that even though it's oscillated a little bit off the peak, but still that we are much poorer in terms of what our dollar gets us than we were two, three years ago. And everyone understands that they feel it. But you're saying something that might be novel to some people. You're saying that even the standard 2% target that the Federal Reserve has always claimed to aim for is also a wrongheaded policy. So could you just explain briefly, and I know this really is its own show, but they've been operating off this Phillips curve, this notion that well, look, there's an automatic trade-off that in order to get economic growth, uh, you know, accompanying that territory is an automatic trade-off that you have to accept a certain baseline of inflation. So people might ask you, well, you want to keep it flat. Isn't that a bad thing? The answer is no. It's a good thing, in my judgment, and that is the, is the real secret to long-term growth, some of the greatest uh, growth uh, in American history. Uh, we're in ages of, of innovation, productivity, and uh, stable price, truly stable prices. That is to say, on average, over long periods, they were flat. Uh, I think the Phillips curve is just a mistake. <laughs> uh, and, but it's now to that you have to add something really important, Daniel, and it's this: inflation by depreciating the value of the debt, as is often said, uh, benefits debtors but who is the biggest debtor of all <laughs> the government itself so the government through its central bank one of the ways it manages its debt is by depreciating the value of that debt through inflation and taxing through inflation which is unlegislated taxation and to to have such taxes the central bank uh, is most most handy uh, to the government, and that's uh, that's one of its dangers. Yep. To, to, in other words, to those that cannot stand what our government does, it all gets back to the Federal Reserve because without that policy, without its existence, but at least if you know, like you say, we went back to the language of this 1977 mandate, the game is over. They could not get away with this degree of largesse because they wouldn't be able to play these games to service it. And again, I mean, this is worse than taxation without representation. It's a, as I say, a lot of people who earn below, you know, depending on how many kids you have and whatever, $100,000, $200,000, depending on the number of kids, you don't really pay that much in federal taxes. What you are paying is in the cost of living. And, and we certainly see that more than ever. And uh, I could tell you- which, uh, which is a tax. It's a transfer from you to the government. Yep. And, uh, you know, obviously with a trillion dollars in debt issued in five weeks, uh, this notion that inflation, I'm sort of sure tomorrow they'll say, oh, the CPI, whatever comes in at, I don't know, let's say 3.5%. You see, it's going down. It's, it, you know, and this is, so we're, isn't it true that we go up to 9% and a lot more in certain critical categories 
and then we slow the annualized rate of growth from that baseline to let's say three and a half percent. And they're saying that correct for the previous nine percent. But but the average person reading these news articles tomorrow, they will think that we erased the inflation. Yeah, well, we were trying to straighten them out, <laughs> Daniel, you and me. Um, unbelievable. <laughs> well, there was so much to digest here. Um, we just scraped the surface, uh, but we did the whole show, and I'm glad we spent the time. Again, where could people find more? Because um, you write in like 50 different places. What's the best place to find your columns? The best place to find me is, is on my own website, because that's got everything I write <laughs> gets posted there uh, in whatever place it gets published so alexjpollock.com as you so nicely said thank you has has everything i've done for about the last uh, six or seven years uh, if, if it's interesting to you and i have have written a lot on the issues that we were uh, dealing with today and it's all it's all there on that website and the book is surprised again the covid crisis and the new market bubble as you pick that up you could see his previous publications as well Folks, we are way out of time. Let me know your comments, questions, and concerns to Alex Pollock at DanielHerwitz at StartMail.com. Thank you, Alex, for joining us. We look forward to having you back and all of you to join me again tomorrow, same time, same place. God bless you all, and thank you for listening.